0: Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is the features editor at Coindesk. He's been a business journalist for well over 20 years, and he'll be talking to some of his favorite contributors to Coindesk's daily opinion section. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Opinions you hear on the show only represent those who express them. And
1: here's your host, Ben Schiller. Welcome to Opinionated. Today we're joined by Nick Carter, a co-founder of Coinmetrics and a partner at Castle Island Ventures. Nick is widely known as one of the most incisive thinkers in our space and we're very proud that he writes for Coindesk twice a month as a columnist. Welcome to the show, Nick.
0: Thanks, Ben. Thank you for editing all of my columns too. That's very
1: It's very easy. It's very easy.
0: Sometimes there's some nonsense in there, but uh, I you know, I was actually a little dubious when I signed up, but uh, you've been great. I'm very proud to write for Coindesk as well.
1: Well, thanks very much. You're one of our best people, believe me. Yeah, so I mean, we could have talked about any one of your columns, but I just wanted to talk about a couple of recent ones because they're very topical. They both involve USD stable coins, what you call crypto dollars. And you talk about why they're surging and what the implications might be for uh, US geopolitical policy. So, first of all, do you want to just talk about the context for stable coins? I mean, why is there so much interest in dollarization in general and USD backed stable coins in particular?
0: Yeah, it's a big topic. I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, and we did a survey, we did, uh, we wrote a white paper on crypto dollars, we call them. And I can get into why I prefer that nomenclature over stable coins. If you add them all up, all the kind of tokenized sovereign currencies and monetary commodities circulating on chain, about 97% of all that references the dollar. That doesn't mean they're all necessarily backed by dollars, you have lots of synthetic dollars that are backed by other forms of collateral and they target the return of the dollar. But the dollar is still the unit of account that those systems reference. And this is kind of interesting to me because if you look at the preponderance of currencies in the international sphere, whether trade receipts or foreign exchange reserves, the dollar is not 97% of that. It's 50 to 70% depending on how you measure it. You know, looking at dollar-denominated debt versus euro-denominated debt, et cetera. So there's something about the crypto industry that means that the dollar, aside from the native currencies, when it comes to tokenized sovereign currencies, the dollar is the overwhelming favorite, which is why I don't really have that many qualms about calling them crypto dollars, even though that might sound a little kind of uh, self-centered or, you know, Anglo-centrist or whatever. Uh, It's a homage to euro-dollars which are like offshore dollars, basically. But yeah, I mean, I think this is really the story of the industry, honestly. And and this isn't something that Satoshi necessarily intended. And there's a lot of good reasons why Bitcoin can't track the return of a sovereign currency. And I think that's great. It should stay that way. But this is a killer app that we kind of stumbled into, which is uh, a completely alternative payments rails. You know, I guess there's the story that we kind of tell outwardly, and then there's the true story, which is a little darker, maybe. But regardless, I think it's the most important phenomenon happening in this, in the industry. I mean, this year we've gone from about four and a half billion in outstanding float for stable coins to about 18 billion as of today. So it's the most preposterous explosion. And it not only tells us a lot about the crypto financial infrastructure and the kind of maturation of the market, I think it tells us a lot about current geopolitics too. So it's kind of inextricably intertwined into the way that the actual financial system works. So it's kind of a really dramatic collision. It's something that I expect to write about a lot more.
1: And do you think this is driven by demand for dollars in general, or are people looking at these technologies as superior to normal money?
0: Well... We've definitely saw with the deflationary shock earlier this year, we saw demand for dollars as the kind of reserve asset, just generally speaking, increase dramatically. You have this real deflationary kind of cascade. People have debts that are denominated in dollars, so they need dollars to pay off the debt, even if they're outside the US. So that's why we saw the dollar rally sharply in March. But more generally, we're in a pretty crazy monetary period. And It's a little different now because the Fed is sort of starting to misbehave a little bit and signal higher inflation. But historically, the dollar has been one of the most stable and slowest to depreciate sovereign currencies. So it has this reputation as being hard money, whether that's deserved or not. And the places that we see stablecoin adoption really flourishing are places where there's either hindrances to moving capital around or the local currency is just unreliable. And in some cases, both of those things are present at the same time. Chainalysis did some great research. They showed where there's on-the-ground adoption of crypto dollars, where Tether is being used the most. Obviously, Tether is the biggest one. And as you might expect, it's places like Russia and China, where there's capital controls. And China, there's a lot of vehicles that elites use to move capital out of China, because there's really significant restrictions. Uh, And there's a lot of kind of monetary repression there. But as it turns out, dollars that are bearer assets, you know, bearer instruments are one of the most convenient ways, if not the most convenient way to move large amounts of assets without too much difficulty. And maybe that's kind of a truth that the industry isn't really, <laughs> doesn't desire to advertise, especially not to US regulators. But that's something that a lot of people know is the case. And I don't think it's anything worth being ashamed of. I mean, we're talking about tools for financial freedom. What are the things that people are going to do with digital bearer assets that are relatively stable? Whether you are going to use them to route around the encumbrances that are placed on transactions by the state? So it's no surprise to me that in places where financial activity is heavily regulated or heavily surveilled, people are going to look for these alternatives. They give you pretty much full autonomy. They give you a decent measure of privacy. And of course, they're completely outside of the financial system, which is pretty much fully surveilled in places like China.
1: The instinctive kind of reaction of policymakers seems to be down on crypto generally and down on stablecoins. Do you think there's sort of a lack of understanding there or is it just sort of uh, instinctive and cultural? If
0: you look at what central bankers have said about stablecoins in the last few weeks, really last couple of months. I mean, it's kind of reached a crescendo recently. It's fascinating because central bankers never really said a lot about Bitcoin. I mean, they wrote some position papers and the BIS, which is the Bank of International Settlements, from time to time would write a paper saying I well, proof of work is doomed. But they were never the slightest bit threatened by Bitcoin because they felt that its monetary policy was pretty cartoonish. right? I mean, We're talking about a currency that increases in kind of a linear fashion, and then that rate of increase is preordained. To central bankers, that's total heresy. And so a priori, they sort of wrote it off. And I mean, in fairness, Bitcoin is still very small. But what they are threatened by is the possibility of their country or their citizens engaging in currency substitution from the bottom up. Without their permission or assent, especially if they're importing kind of a stable currency whose merit is not really in question. So, we've seen lots of central bankers weigh in on the stablecoin phenomenon as potentially threatening their monetary independence. And, you know, the ECB has been talking about it, Christine Lagarde has talked about it. You know, name your central bank and they refer obliquely to the fact that they're nervous about crypto dollars, because there's the potential for the import of dollars in a way that can't really be controlled. Because again, we're talking about bearer instruments, all you really need to receive a stable coin is a mobile wallet. And all you need to send it is an internet connection. So it's not something that you necessarily need to use established financial infrastructure to get access to. And Worst comes to worst, you can use crypto financial infrastructure for that access point to fiat, You know something like local bitcoins, to get exposure to stable coins through your, your local sovereign currency. That's also very hard to regulate. So this is kind of an interesting situation where the thing that central bankers are nervous about is the effective dollarization of their local populations. Not that that's likely in the EU, for instance. I don't know why people would abandon the euro and go for the dollar, but in, you know, a country with 15-20% annual inflation, something like the dollar starts to look a lot more attractive. And we're actually seeing some of these dollarizations happen in real time this year in Venezuela. People have been talking about the potential for dollarization for a long time. It's actually pretty much happened this year and you're reaching kind of dollar penetration rates of 70-80% in Venezuela now. A lot of it is physical cash, actual Federal Reserve notes, which are imported through one method or another into Venezuela. But some of it is digital. Uh, Some of it uses fintech apps like Zelle, uh, which is kind of interesting, even though Zelle plays whack a mole trying to ban (laughs) Venezuelans on the platform. Uh, And some of it uses, uh, in some cases, their stable coins. And I'm sure that's going to be a bigger part of it in the future. So, I think it's a real threat, not necessarily Bitcoinization, but dollarization through crypto financial infrastructure.
1: So from the US perspective, you argue in the piece that more dollars in circulation, whether they're crypto dollars or normal dollars, is good for the US. Do you want to just expand on, on that idea?
0: Well, as you know, like I wrote a couple of columns on this. The first one, I think I was a little naive, just taking this kind of optimistic view that the U.S. is automatically in favor of more dollars as opposed to fewer dollars. So, you know, in theory, if there were a lot of dollars held by foreigners, that mean that the effect of inflation could be borne by those people overseas. And so the political kind of consequences of inflation would be less worse. But as I kind of investigated this more and more, I kind of realized that, or I was at least persuaded by the view that the strong dollar, uh, the buying pressure that comes from the dollar being the global reserve is actually pretty bad for most Americans. And it's good for a small percentage of Americans. But so what I mean by that is that because there's this artificial demand for the dollar, well, not artificial, but there's this demand that far exceeds kind of our share of the global GDP for the dollar, because trade is generally settled in dollars, especially commodities. The dollar kind of trades at a premium to its quote unquote natural level. This means that American manufacturing is kind of uneconomical. When you want to increase your exports, you tend to want to devalue your currency, make it cheaper. And so people have noticed this, but our manufacturing base has been kind of obliterated in the last 30, 40 years. And a lot of people attribute it to the strength of the dollar. So, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners talk about the purchasing power of the dollar eroding. But maybe contrary to that, the dollar has actually been buoyed by the demand globally for USD, you know, as this reserve asset, as a safe asset. And that has meant that blue collar industries in the US have been kind of crushed. So I'm no longer convinced that the ability to create lots of dollars is, you know, the exorbitant privilege, as people sometimes call it. I'm actually currently of the opinion that we'd be better off as a country, uh, especially as far as inequality is concerned, if the dollar were weaker. That said, the natural question is well, why is that not changing? Why, Why are policymakers not devaluing the dollar to kind of re onshore manufacturing and heavy industry and so on? And I think the answer to that gets us to the crux of the argument, which is the U.S policy elite maintains enormous advantages from the existence of the dollar and in particular kind of dollar financial infrastructure, you know, most notably the correspondent banking system and SWIFT and that system that links all global banks effectively back to a small handful of banks, mostly in New York, they benefit from the existence of that system because it gives them this really profound ability to potentially exclude whole countries or specific banks from that system. And that gives them enormous power. And sanctions are currently the major way that the US wages war. And they're the way that we project hard power overseas is the threat of sanctions. And like any tool, I think it gets blunt if you overuse it. And this is the point I made in my second column on the topic. We benefit from This monopoly situation in terms of the currency that trade globally is denominated in. And what that does is it gives you the ancillary benefit of being able to project power globally and threaten people with exclusion and exile from that system. And uh, it's a very convenient tool. But my argument is that it's kind of an opiate. And by overusing it, we're going to get attenuated to it. And I think we've seen that too. You know, financial enforcement or uh, sanctions—the you know, rate of sanctioning certain countries or threatening sanctions—has increased pretty dramatically, and people are kind of getting sick of it too because they wanted to use a financial system that's neutral. But this current financial system, you know, mediated by the U.S. and the Bretton Woods organizations, is distinctly non-neutral right now. It exists to service U.S. policy objectives regardless of their merit, people are kind of getting sick of it. So to summarize, the point that I'm making in my second article on the topic is, well, there's this new network of offshore, mostly offshore dollars that are being issued on blockchain infrastructure. The whole point of public blockchains is that they are neutral, that the blockchain itself is not interested in who can transact on it. It's pretty much indifferent to the identity of who's transacting on it it's kind of an equal opportunity database and um, the US should consider embracing a neutral alternative to the highly politicized kind of New York-based correspondent banking system before it's too late and before whole tranches of its allies defect to, you know, a Chinese or a Russian system. Not saying that's going to happen imminently, but that the US would actually be really well placed to underwrite a shift to a neutral alternative, to embrace a neutral alternative and say hey, okay, we we recognize that this is likely the direction that things are going. We believe that this kind of financial freedom actually comports with our values, although the US has sort of lost its way in that respect. And I think the US would be really well-placed to encourage the development of a system like that. So that was kind of the realization that I had.
1: So, I mean, that's interesting. So, um, I mean, at the same time, there's been this crypto dollar surge. There's been a lot of talk around having national digital currencies. So uh, China's developing one, Europe's got one, you know, every country's got one. The U S is apparently developing one too. How do you see these kind of parallel innovations happening and would the U S be better placed giving up a central bank digital currency and embracing this kind of private sector solution? Well, that was kind of the
0: objective of that second column that I wrote was to encourage, those policymakers to consider the role of the private sector. And I don't think you can overstate the significance of what the crypto industry has accomplished here. I really do believe that the growth of stablecoins has helped catalyze that CBDC conversation at central banks, which was a murmur a year ago, and it's a cacophony today. I would say the Libra announcement also has a lot to do with it, but Libra isn't live yet, and other stablecoins are, and the proof is in the pudding. You know, Tether is somewhere in the the range of 13, 14 billion of outstanding float. Uh, It's a system that's worked since 2015 or so. People raise questions about it, but it's by far the most liquid and the largest stablecoin, and that counts for something. So I think the movement towards CBDC is a reaction to the private sector saying, hey, you guys weren't willing to create a true digital cash. And by digital cash, I mean something that settles quickly, something that's relatively private, although imperfectly so in this case, and something that gives you a reasonable amount of transactional autonomy. Those are all the case with actual physical cash. Our digital transaction tools that we have in the West, they don't give you any of those traits. They're highly surveilled. They don't give you autonomy. They're not private. There's a lot of conditions based on what you can do within that system. So stablecoins exist as a riposte to that, as a challenge. You know, here's an instrument which has bearer asset qualities in a digital context. That's what the cypherpunks were trying to build the whole time. And I think the success of stablecoins is a natural consequence of the innate human desire for a true apolitical. Highly autonomous sort of cash system online. Now, the question is, can, you know, our central banks create a competitor to that? My guess would be no. I don't think any central bank could create something which gives you genuine transactional freedom. I think every nation state is going to jump at the chance to gain more surveillance ability. You know, the FinCEN leaks tell us basically that financial surveillance is. You know, what is ostensibly a tool for financial crimes enforcement is really just a surveillance dragnet to be employed for any purpose when a certain target is found to, to find some plausible potential infraction that they've committed. But really, it's just to create an enormous surveillance uh, instrument. I don't see any central bank creating a truly private CBDC. I don't have any confidence that the Fed would embrace genuine privacy.
1: So how do you see this playing out long term? I mean, uh, it seems unlikely that the U.S., despite what you say, will embrace this, this opportunity. I mean, it's a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas or something.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying they should do. And maybe some policymakers will read my article and change their mind. You know, we'll see. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm encouraged by, you know, Christian Carlo, ex-CFTC chair, creates the digital dollar project. I'm encouraged by some of the discourse that I'm seeing in Washington. Some of it does really seem generally motivated by a desire to create true cash-like experiences in a digital context, which I think a lot of people recognize is very important, and comports with American values of individualism and a free enterprise, uh, autonomy. So it's very hard to forecast, though. I mean, the biggest stablecoin issuer, Tether, is currently under threat from NYAG, probably because Tether disrupts New York's monopoly on dollar clearing. So they're being targeted by them uh, for one reason or another. So they could evaporate in a blink of an eye if that enforcement is successful. Uh, There's huge unanswered questions about whether the way that stablecoins in the US are kind of regulated or implicitly regulated, whereby most transactions are not really surveilled by the issuer of the stablecoin. The issuer is only really responsible for transactions between people creating and redeeming the stablecoin and them. The issuer is not necessarily interested or doesn't have to be interested in transactions between users on the network. So this is kind of like the way that gift cards are regulated. But we're talking about an industry which is enormous. It's approaching $20 billion in float and it does $5 billion plus in transactional value per day. So there's really big open questions over that kind of, I don't know if I want to call it a loophole, but that regulatory status quo. Uh, there's big questions. I mean, the OCC, which is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is the bank regulator, kind of helped answer this a little bit recently as to whether banks can custody the dollars backing these stablecoins. Uh, maybe stablecoin issuers will eventually one day have direct access to the Federal Reserve, and that would be a kind of a hybrid crypto dollar slash cbdc That could be one way we kind of backdoor our way into it, so it's very, very hard to forecast. I think what is clear is that there's an enormous demonstrated demand for the properties of physical cash in a digital context. And if the public sector does not provide this, the private sector will. And that's what they're doing already.
1: Just one final question. I mean, it does seem like the future of money as a topic is tremendously consequential. And I'm struggling to think of a consequential topic that is so little discussed amongst policymakers uh, in Washington and elsewhere. I mean, there is a conversation, but it doesn't seem to accord with the consequences here. So um, do you expect to see a more sort of nuanced debate going forward, or are these policymakers going to continue to put their heads in the sand?
0: I think the reason that it doesn't get discussed to the extent maybe it should is because the conversations around the strength of the dollar are really awkward conversations to have. I mean, admitting that the dollar's effective premium due to kind of the petrodollar situation has led to the offshoring of American jobs, that's kind of a really painful realization. And acknowledging that maybe we should have gone with something more like a Bancor as opposed to the system that developed after 1971 with the US as the sole reserve issuer, that's a painful realization. And lastly, acknowledging that our financial infrastructure is partially a tool for power projection as opposed to facilitating commerce, that's a pretty awkward thing to acknowledge and to admit. So I don't even think that the establishment is really ready to have that conversation. I think it's going to be a difficult transition But my hope is that our policymakers kind of see the light here and they recognize that crypto financial infrastructure is something that would be powerfully neutral and they should embrace a system that they can't dominate for that precise reason, because it would be superior to the current system, which really isn't working for a lot of people. So that would be my entreaty to them.
1: Perfect. Thanks so much, Nick, for coming on and continue with the great work. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks to Nick Carter for coming on. Stay tuned for another episode. We'll be appearing every two weeks. And please, if you have an opinion about crypto and the world out there, please get in touch. My email address is ben at coindesk.com. See you.